picture books are are like that. They are sort of, you know, they're healing in a way and they help, you know, kids deal with the world and they're funny and they're entertaining and they're, you know, they're all the, the things that good art should be. Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, editor-at-large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. Today, we're talking about the enduring power of picture books. Recent studies have found that reading aloud to children from birth is not only a source of joy, but also a key factor in a child's intellectual and emotional development. What better way to reach a young reader than with a stunning picture book? That's why Scholastic recently launched an awareness campaign called The Story Starts Here. It emphasizes the importance of reading to children from day one. The campaign showcases illustrated books for babies, toddlers, and young children. Today, to talk about this, we have with us Scholastic's Liza Baker and best-selling author-illustrator Stephen Savage. Let's start with Liza, who is an editor at Scholastic. She is our resident expert when it comes to picture books. Welcome, Liza. Thanks so much. I'm happy to be here. Well, we're happy that you're with us here today. Tell us, why is reading aloud with young children so beneficial? You know, there are so many reasons why it's beneficial and so important. And reading from the day a child is born and throughout a child's life really helps build a foundational bond between a parent and child, unlike any other. Um, Scholastic's Kids and Family Reading Report shows that kids look back at that shared reading time as some of the most special and meaningful moments that they can share together as a family. And of course, we all know reading aloud offers that intimate connection with a child cozied up on your lap, and you can really share that magical experience of a book coming to life. Right. So in addition to the literacy, just the emotional bond Absolutely. is so important. So and really, you know, that that experience can begin early on. We have formats for every kid at every stage. Um, I love to suggest starting with cloth books for newborn babies Uh because they're cuddly and tactile and soft, um, and the child can really touch and play as you're reading. And then you can move on to board books um, and novelty books. And then beyond that, of course, our beloved picture books. Great, great. And can you tell us a little bit more about The Story Starts Here? Sure. The Story Starts Here is a campaign that shines the light on our amazing range of illustrated books for kids zero to seven at Scholastic. Um, Really, the aim is to build awareness about the importance of reading to children starting on day one and also throughout their lives. Um, We've heard from kids, they love being read aloud to even well beyond the time that they're independent readers. Um, So our hope is really to offer caregivers and parents and librarians and booksellers um, a rich array of books um, for every child, every stage and age, and to put the right book in the right child's hands. I I do have a few colleagues who read to their child when they were still in the womb. Yes, it's true. And (laughs) really, you know, the the American Association of Pediatrics recommend starting on day one from birth. And and really, I mean, it's about as much as the parent connecting with the child as it is the child connecting with the parent and connecting with books. Right. 
Okay, well, I want the mom to get a little sleep too, but okay. Um, can you share some of your favorite books with us? Absolutely. This is the part I love. Um, I have three little boys at home, three, five, and six, um, and they are busy and we read constantly. Um, and all three of my boys love funny books. Um, my, my youngest, Caleb, just adores If You're a Robot and You Know It. Um, it's Laugh Out Loud Funny. It's by David Carter. It includes really innovative uh, novelty pops on every page, um, but it's silly and it's based on the song, If You're Happy and You Know It. So he sings along. I hear him after bedtime singing, singing even after story time is done. Um, my older boys love um, Frog on a Log by Kess Gray, and it just offers silly wordplay um, and really fun, absurd humor that keeps them giggling. Um, my boys also really love friendship stories. Um, they love friendship. Of course, friendship is the sort of heart of what their lives are all about in these early um, years. And so they love um, creative explorations of friendship and the friendship dynamic. And friendship um, is just a great exploration for kids at a variety of ages, really colorful illustrations by Tom Lichtenheld. And Amy Krauss Rosenthal, the author, um, has really crafted a, a seemingly simple but really layered and smart exploration of friendship in every shape and size. Terrific. Thank you. And we also know that dad's reading to children is very important, but there are some parents who may not be as comfortable reading or even have familiarity with the, the language. They may come from another country and they're pressured, read to your child, read to your child. What advice do you have for them? That's a great question. You know, I think um, just allowing um, and inviting a parent to really ham it up. I always say, be playful, have fun. There's no script. There's no right or wrong. And actually, you don't have to read word by word. You can improvise. You can make up your own words. And anyone who's ever read to a child know it's knows that it's a story interrupted. Kids are asking questions in a beautiful way. Kids are asking questions as they go about the art. They want to turn back. They want to flip ahead. If kids are getting restless, move forward. They, they may get there in a year or two, but read at the stage that they're at and improvise. Make it fun, dramatic, um, playful voices. There's no right or wrong. Okay, great. Thank you, Liza. Um, and, you know, your suggestions and comments are going to be really helpful for parents. And I want to say to anyone out there who wants to learn more about this collection, you can visit storystartshere.scholastic.com. Our next guest is Stephen Savage. Stephen is the author and illustrator of nine books for children, including Where's Walrus and Where's Walrus and Penguin, Polar Bear Morning and Polar Bear Night, which was named a New York Times Best Illustrated Children's Book. Stephen also illustrates for adults. His work has appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, and other esteemed publications. Thanks so much for joining us today, Stephen. Thank you. Great to be here. It's great to have you. Um, all right, so I just was wanted to ask you first off, what drew you to picture books? Well, uh, I loved them as a kid, and um, you know, as a career, it's been a little bit of a long and winding road to get here. Um, I was telling everybody earlier that um, I worked at a publisher right out of college. That was my first job, uh, an office job, um, sort of being on the sidelines. 
And then um, uh, that was sort of what planted the seed, was working at this company, um, HarperCollins. And uh, then I thought, hmm, maybe I'll be an illustrator. And then I went to graduate school at the School of Visual Arts and um, got an MFA there. And then um, I was thinking, oh, I'll do a children's book for my thesis. And I ended up doing a more sort of adult topic, which uh, sent me in another direction of uh, the editorial career that you mentioned. So then I started working for the New York Times and other publications. And then after about five or six years of that, I slowly started gravitating back towards the children's books. And I thought, hmm, I'm going to send something around, send a little mailer. And um, I sent a promotional mailer to David Saylor at Scholastic. And that's how it began. Wow. The story begins here. Yes, it does, (laughs) literally. (laughs) All right. So, well, were you a bookish kid? I mean, or were there any particular authors or illustrators you were drawn to? Um, bookish kid. Wow. I feel like I must sit, since I'm in a book publisher, I should say yes to that question. But I, unfortunately, I don't think I would classify myself as a bookish kid. Um, I did, of course, love stories and loved, um, there were certain stories that I, that I loved, uh, certain authors. I loved Leaky. I loved, uh, Crockett Johnson. Um, I loved a lot of nonfiction and I love to watch movies, um, because it was storytelling. But um, as a kid, I think I was more of a kind of an art kid. So I like to be busy. I think I, you know, sort of had the proverbial ants in my pants. So sitting down and reading, I think that's the problem with a lot of boys encounter. So moms and dads are cracking the whip and saying, oh, you need to read like your sister. But the little boy is running around either wanting to do sports or, you know, bounce off the wall. And I, I, I think I'm still like this. I need to keep my hands busy. So I was crafting and doing more of that than than reading books. So Well, that brings up an interesting question. We talked to parents about the importance of reading from birth. What does one do with a boy who wants to run around and play and get his hands dirty? Um, well, maybe maybe you do the reading after the playground. Maybe it's playground first and then reading second. Um just somehow fostering the love of storytelling. Reading to me is storytelling. Um, It's a basic human impulse, you know, somehow clearly, you know, I have a daughter who's in first grade. She's was raised on books. She was getting, you know, we were reading, my wife was reading her books from the age of, you know, three months. And so um, it just becomes part of the daily routine. I guess like a lot of things with raising kids, it comes down to routine. So if that's what people do in the house, then that's what kids know. Right, so. right. Great. And uh, let's talk about the artistic process for you. I, I, In an interview, you once said that when it comes to your work, the goal is trying to invent simple images for things that are hard to put into words. Can you talk a little bit more about this and how it affects what you do? Well, I think I'm drawn to that approach. There isn't a lofty reason why, why I do that. I just feel like that that's what I do best. Probably if I was to sit down on the analyst's couch and, you know, go over it with him or her, the reasons would probably come out of some neurotic places. I, I feel like I get overwhelmed very easily. You know, I'm a nervous person. So I feel like too many things are overwhelming. So less is more is always better for me. So, um, you know, I think your art is a response to who you are. It's I'm trying to um, to be ordered and simple because quite honestly, I think don't think I'm simple and I don't think I'm ordered. So your art becomes, you know, your best self in a way. So it seems to me that children's book illustrators are a rare breed. 
<laughs> Except if you're like me and you live in Brooklyn, then you walk out the door and you bump into one. But... <laughs> um, just in, in their yeah. ways, the quirkiness. And you'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that community in Brooklyn and also yeah. the, in, the influence of the great Maurice Sendak in Brooklyn. Oh, yes. Um, yes, definitely. The great, the great Maurice, yes. Um, who I got to have some contact with this summer when I went to the Sendak Fellowship. So uh, I knew he was from Brooklyn. I found out this summer when I stayed on his farm in upstate New York that he uh, he grew up in Brooklyn, but he moved to the country because sort of for some of the reasons I just talked about, he needed a quieter, simpler life. So I think his heart doctor told him he needed to move up to Connecticut. So I guess that's how they used to deal with, <laughs> they used to deal with people, Get you know, of instead of, yeah, yeah. Or instead of handing you a pill, it's like, you need to move to the country. Right, yeah. right, right. But, um, but what was your first question before we talked about Maurice? Well, just oh. the community in Brooklyn. Yeah. I know you have a, a group yeah. there that you are involved with and just sort of the types of personalities and artists and how you, yeah. your work plays off each other. Yeah. Well, you were, you used the word, you know, the term rare breed. I mean, it's a little bit, you know, when you, when you hear interviews with comedians, you see similar uh, personality types. So there's a little bit of that with, with, you know, I mean, comedians, I feel are artists, you know, they're, they're in fact, storytellers and artists and very much like, like picture book people. So there's a little bit of a, you know, they're kind of malcontents a little bit, you know, and something, I heard years ago, um, I was actually doing an event here at Scholastic and I met um, uh, John, John J. Muth and um, I was a little nervous about meeting him because he was, you know, he's like the Zen master and I thought I need to, you know, he's going to impart some Zen wisdom. And we somehow started talking about the thing that we're talking about right now, the creative process. And he said, well, I guess, you know, you need that, that irritant in order to create the art. And I said, uh, I said, what? And then, you know, he brought out his Zen metaphor and he says, oh yeah, it's, it's like the, um, the oyster, you know, you need the sand to create the pearl. And I was like, wow, John, I remember that one. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So you, you bump into these people in Brooklyn or your children's book friends and you, and you spot the irritant pretty quickly. So, um, just like a comedian, um, you know, is probably creating his or her comedy in response to they're depressed or they're angry or, you know, something. Are so. you talking about Larry David by any chance? <laughs> um, yes. Well, you... well, I feel like that. I, I, pers I feel like that's the best art. I mean, comedy is really a healing art. So, um, and I don't feel like, I mean, I don't want to put myself in the category of Larry David, but I feel like, uh, you know, picture books are, are like that. They are sort of, you know, they're healing in a way and they help, you know, kids, deal with the world and they're funny and they're entertaining and they're, you know, they're all the, the things that good art should be, you know, just like a great movie, you know, and you walk right. out of a great movie or you read a great picture book and you're like, wow, you know, you're just, you know, you're, you're high, you know, on life. Uh -huh. So, well, we know of course that storytelling is, is vital to our existence and you have some books here that are wordless tales. Yes. And I think that's so interesting, particularly from the perspective of parents who may struggle with reading themselves and want to tell stories to their children or just have a narrative or even boys who are anxious and don't want to sit down and see words. So could you walk us through your Where's Wal Walrus book, for example? Sure, sure. Well, um, yeah, it's, it's something that we can talk about right now. We, of course, can't share the story because it's all told with pictures. But I, I love that aspect of it. I think that it's, it's, um, it was something that was a little, uh, you know, difficult to overcome when we were making it. And I think that people who, uh, readers, 
have a little bit of trouble with that too. I mean, I think, you know, traditionally picture books don't, uh, wordless picture books don't do as well as books with words because parents just kind of don't know what to do with them. But I think the, uh, you know, I love the format because it's a little bit about what I was saying when I was a kid. It's kind of like, well, you have to sort of, you just got to do it. You got to figure it out. There's no script. So um, you sit down and um, you start figuring out, you have to involve yourself in some way in the story. So um, do you know the story of Where's Walrus? I certainly yes. do. Yes. <laughs> so Where's Walrus um, is the story of a walrus who breaks out of the zoo but the, the, there are no words that tell you why he breaks out of the zoo or what he's going to do or where he's going to go or how he feels about this. So depending on, you know, depending on the reader, depending on what the reader is feeling about the character, you know, you, we, we, we see a character in a movie or in a, or in a book and we put themselves into that character. And, you know, what's great is, is you can go as deep with the book as you want or as shallow as you want. You can read it to a three-month-old and say, where's Walrus? And that's it. That's the story. doesn't go any deeper than that. Or with an older child, with a six-year-old or a seven-year-old, you could say, well, that's what I did when I first got to New York. I was a little bit like Walrus. I tried on different hats. I worked at a publishing company. You know, I did a couple of jobs I didn't like. And finally, if you keep trying, you might find your calling in life. So... One of my favorite illustrations in the book is the one in Central Park when the zookeeper is looking for walrus and he's sitting drawing the zookeeper. <laughs> oh, I love that one too. Well, if you notice, that's the that's the um, kind of the lushest spread. You know, it's the one with the most color, and you know, I I don't think it's any accident that that's the that's the artist spread. That's where walrus gets to be an artist. So um, when I go to when I go to kindergartens and and preschools. I always say, hey, everybody, you know, this is me. This is my spread. You know, this is, this is, this is, you know, I, when I was the walrus, this is, you know, this is where I wanted to be. You know, I wanted to be in front of this canvas and painting the city. And yeah, and this is his, that spread comes as sort of the uh, conclusion to the chase. After that, the chase kind of starts winding down and he ends up at the pool. And so... Yeah. You were also drawn to dinosaurs as a kid, I'm told. I was. I definitely, yes. What inspired that love? That's what you need to do for the for the hyperactive boys. You need to find them some dinosaurs. So um, I loved a book. I actually have it right here in front of me. I'm going to, I'm going to pick it up and I'm going, to, oh, I can feel the magic as I hold the book. It's called, I love this. This is a let's read and find out science book. And the title is My Visit to the Dinosaurs by, and this is very mysterious. This person only has one name, Aliki. Oh wow. my gosh, who is this Aliki? This is like a, <laughs> a voice from another world. Right. I, so um, I love this book as a child. And if you go to the back page, I found out that Aliki is Aliki Brandenburg, who um, did many, many wonderful books. And um, uh, I just loved her drawings. Something about her drawings as a kid. It's, it's funny when you think of the books that you're drawn to as a kid, there's something that feels sort of kid-like about the drawings. Like, oh, I could draw that Allosaurus. There's something uh, approachable. And, you know, a kid doesn't want to pick up a piece of art that feels like an expert or an adult did it. There needs to be the kid's voice, you know, the, vo the quote unquote voice in the art. So she um, definitely has that voice in her art. And I was, I was telling everybody the story earlier of when I met her, she was just as sweet and just as approachable as her drawings. When I met her, um, I met her in 1994 when I was working at a publishing company and she came into the office because she was promoted, she was doing another book. 
And, um, you know, I turned into the 10-year-old child. You know, I was like, oh, it's a leaky. You know, I bowed down in front of her and handed her the book that I have in my hands right now. And she, and I said, oh, she's not going to want to do this. She's got stuff to do, you know, while she's in the office. She's here on business, you know. And she stopped her meeting with my boss and she opened the cover. And uh, my name is in script here. It's a Stephen Savage. You, know, you can definitely tell it's the hand of a 10-year-old child. <laughs> okay. And she put in front of it, I heart and a little circle around it. And then underneath that, a little dinosaur reading a book. And I thought, oh, wow, this is going well. This is good. (laughs) Wow. This is, Aliki is everything that I could ever imagined her to be. And then I'll just read the inscription. She said, she said, oh, I'll I'll write something in it. I thought, okay, that's fine. And she says, dear Stephen, at last we meet, life is full of surprises and full circles. How lovely to meet you with, with much love, Aliki. Wow, I get a little, I get slightly choked up. I'm slightly choked up. And then it says, 11 May, 1994. Um, so, you know, um, it's, I did feel like as if we had already met. So the, and she understood this, that books do this. We had in some way already met. Right, right. So all this is to say, books are an amazing connection that kids can have. So, um, yeah, it doesn't happen. It happened with this book. It doesn't happen with too many books. It happened with this book, though. So, and you go yeah. to schools yourself and visit. I do kindergartners. So, what's that I like? Do. Oh, it's it's fantastic. I love it. It's really great. You know, I mean, <clears throat> it's a little scary. You know, you have because you need to be. You know, you've got to be really sort of on. And it's a whole. I've talked to other authors and illustrators about this. It's a whole different skill set than actually making the book. So you sort of take off the one hat. You take off the author illustrator hat. And then you need to go into like party mode, you know, performance <laughs> mode. And I think the people that, you know, don't do so well with it are the ones that don't understand that, that it really, you know, it's not like you're an adult, you know, you're not, you know, Tom Clancy where you can just sort of show up and it may, and your book does all the heavy lifting. They, a lot of kids don't know your book and they're there to, you're, they're there to see you there and, and, and you and the book are separate things. So you need to sort of, you know, your show is separate from the book. It's about, you know, almost actually coming in and you're a, you're a teacher in that moment. It's like right, you're a sub, right. it's like you're a special substitute teacher. Uh-huh. So if you don't want to be a, a, a kindergarten teacher, it's probably not a great idea to go to school because <laughs> you need to, you need to kind of be a leader. You need to walk in and say, okay, come on. And you need to do the, right, you know, right. if the, if the kids are getting um, yeah, there's all those little tricks. Like there's the clapping trip and it's like all eyes on me. And you've all your little tools. You learn this after a while, you know? Oh. So, but I, I love it. And I've gone into my, my daughter's school, which was a hoot. Oh. I went in and did that. And um, yeah, everybody knows me at, at, uh, at PS39 in Brooklyn. <clears throat> and um, all the kids know me and know that I do books and it's great. What happens when you read Where's Walrus to them? <laughs> do they read it with you? Do they come up with a narrative themselves? Well, the the reading of Where's Walrus is, it's barely a reading. It's it's kind of like, you know, improv, you know, comedy. It's, you know, I go in my, my I you know, the, there's trial and error to, to figure out, you know, what works. The secret to Where's Walrus and Penguin, the new one, is I've got like a, a Viking hat. You Once I put the Viking hat in, I'm golden. It's like... It's all, I, in fact, I should have put it on right now. If you're sitting in a room, if I would had a Viking hat right on right now with the horns, you know, the, you know, the yes. where's the wabbit, you know, hat, you know, <laughs> people, um, the kids are like, you have all of a sudden, um, you know, 
stoop to their level. They're like, you know, <laughs> so I go in. So the first thing I do is, as I say, this is, this is, this is my new, you know, secret introduction. I walk in with Where's Walrus and Penguin. And I say, this is a story about, you know, putting on different hats and, you know, we're going to tell the story. But, you know, the main thing is, is you just need to, you know, figure out, you know, where the walrus is and look, you know, look for the special hat that, that he has on. So, and I said, do you want to see the weirdest hat he has? And I had this bag and I very slowly opened the bag. I ends up the bag and the kids are trying to see what's in the bag. And then they see the tip of the horn coming out. And then they start saying, oh, I know what it is. Oh, do you see it? There's a, that's a hat with a horn on it. And then I pull it out and then they laugh and then they see the blonde braids. And then that's it. They go nuts with the blonde braids. I mean, cross-dressing is a huge hit with that set. You know, you, you, a man puts on blonde hair, you know, has girl braids. And wow, that's crazy. And, uh, and then I say to them, I say, okay, so this is the hat. This is the weirdest hat. This is the strangest, most, you know, nutty hat in the whole book. When you see this, everybody, let's do a Viking roar. And everyone's, can you do that? And then, so then I say, I'm going to take it off right now. I just wanted to show you the hat. And then, no, no, don't take it off. Keep it on. Read the book with the hat the whole time. Really? Do I have to keep the hat on? Yes, you do. And so then I end up reading the whole book with the Viking horns on. And then we get to the spread, you know, where they're at the, you know, the Met and the Valkyries are up there on the stage. And then they forget, you know, that's the other thing with six-year-olds. And I say to them, you were supposed to give me the Viking roar when we got to that page. And then they go, you know. So the point is, is that, you got to have your funny hat. Yeah. So. All right. Well, you also interact with some older kids at the School of Visual Arts. Is that right? I do. What, I do. What do you teach? Yeah. So, so, uh, so a complete, I would say a completely different animal. It's an 18 year old, very different from a six year old undergraduates in the illustration program. And I teach a couple of elective course, courses that are based on the work that I did as an editorial illustrator. So I teach, um, a portrait class. I teach a spot illustration class, which is a conceptual class. And um, yeah, it, it, it feels, it feels separate except for the fact that, you know, whether you go into a, you know, whether you're here talking into a microphone about your books or whether you go to a kindergarten or whether you teach an undergraduate class at SVA, you're kind of doing the same thing, which is you're telling stories. There needs to be a point to what you're saying and you need to kind of follow, you know, no one's going to remember every single thing that you say. And if you can somehow couch, you know, your thought in a joke or an idea or a story about a book that a, that a woman signed, you know, 22 years ago, there needs to be, you know, that storytelling. And what's wonderful is, is that all these things that I do, the writing of the walrus books and polar bear night and polar bear morning and the teaching, they all dovetail into each other. They're all like, I feel, and my wife says this to me all the time. She says like, all the things you do, they all like right. blend into each other. They're all part of the same thing. Right. So, so and, and all of it's fun too. So it's not like, oh no, now I've got to do this. Now I got to go tape this podcast. It all becomes, they, all these things feed on each other. So when I go into school, I feel like, well, I'm just, it's a slightly different audience, but I have to tell a good story. And, and, and I would also say with that, is I have to be, I have to be a teacher in all of these things. You know, you're sort of, which is, which I don't think I'm, I'm naturally good at. And being a teacher is about being clear, number one. And also this is the tough one, being positive. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no one wants a downer. No one wants a teacher, a substitute teacher comes in and says, you kids are bad. You know, right, right. you have to be just loving and positive. And so that's when, when I get home and I'm tired, 
That's when my wife says to me, she says, come on, you know, don't be so negative, you know? So you're saving your positive side, uh, your positive self for, right. for your, for all the students and all of your readers. Street angel, house devil, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm totally. very interested in you teach portraiture. <laughs> yes. Or, um, you, I saw an illustration you did of Sonia Sotomayor, for example, yes. and even in Where's Walrus and your children's books, yeah. very simply you convey personalities. Uh-huh. How does one tell an 18 year old how to do that? Or how does one yeah. do that? What do you observe differently than the rest of us in an everyday wow. experience? That's such a great question. Wow. I mean, how do you get people to do their best and how do you get them, how do you teach? You know, that's really the question. Right. So the, there's a, you know, in, in recent years, there's this, there's a whole movement to how, how is it that you teach? You know, in the old days, I remember when I was a kid and I was taught art, it was like, here's your mimeographed sheet, color in the <laughs> coins with crayons. Right. Uh, that's, that seems like, like the dark ages now, if we look at the way art is taught now. So, you know, and I've had great teachers and I've talked to them about, you know, my brother actually is an art history teacher and he, I get a lot of advice from him. And it's kind of like, you know, I had a teacher when I was at the MFA program named Marshall Arisman, who's a very famous illustrator. And he's kind of like a Zen master. He's kind of like a, like in the John Muth mold. He's like, you don't tell anybody what to do. You tell them a wonderful story. You know, you tell them the story about the oyster and the pearl or you sort of set by example, you know, is when you are telling people what to do, when you're forcing them to do something, nobody wants to do that. So hopefully you're just setting an example. You're having fun. If you have fun, you're setting an example for what the process is. So, because I'm not going to be able to get anybody to do my portrait style, my less is more portrait style, probably not going to find somebody else who's going to be able to do it in the exact same way, because that's my own personality. It's my hairstyle. You can't, you know, I can't have your hairstyle and you can't have my hairstyle. We both have our particular hair. We I don't are, think anyone would want my hairstyle, <laughs> but okay. <laughs> Nobody likes their own hairstyle because it's you. So um, so my hairstyle, my visual hairstyle is, is uh, particular to me. So I can show my kids the way I do things, but hopefully they'll say like, oh, well, he did it his way. So maybe I can learn how to do it my way. So, um, I mean, I think I do attract the kids that do like the sort of like the modernistic things, you know, someone who's probably has a sort of an interest in, in heavy, heavily painted things probably wouldn't take my courses. But um, I think about that all the time. And I think I'm actually getting better at it. I think I'm, I, I taught a course last fall and I thought I'm going to kind of let the kids go and I'm not going to throw a lot of sil- syllabus at them. I'm going to kind of, and it was a really fun course. And I think it was my most successful course because, because we had fun actually. And if you can let go of some control, you know, right. and say, you know what, I'm not going to crack the whip. You know, if, if some kids don't get it, well, there's a lesson in that, you know. So, um, but when you're sort of like a nervous control freak like me, um, <laughs> you know, it's like if you have a party, you're supposed to have fun at your own party. It's really difficult to let go. But the best party that you could ever host is the one where you just don't really care, you know, where you just sort of let it, let it be the party that it's going to be. Right, so, right. Do you bring sketch pads to parties? Uh, <laughs> it's funny. We have some. We have some friends in Park Slope, and the other day we went out and did something, and and the husband Michael he turned to me and says, "You got your sketch pad with you?" He said, and I said, "I don't think I. I don't. I don't have it today." And he's like, "I've never seen you without your." And usually they're these yeah. tiny little pads, so that I can sort of you know smuggle them. Um, but it's like it, 
I mean, there could be something worse in my pocket, you know, than a sketch pad. <laughs> no, so, I wasn't saying that accusing No, <laughs> no, no. But it's just like, it's it, it's funny too, because sort of like the when we were talking about the teaching and the party stuff, it's like when you are not looking and whereas Walrus started as little tiny sketches in the sketchbook, because it's like catching little, they say this, that you're supposed to do that with writing. Like you're supposed to you're supposed to catch ideas as they fall like little raindrops. You know, if you sit down and say, okay, I'm going to muscle this book out, it's not going to be good. So if you can kind of just, you know, catch things as they come and, and, you know, not think of yourself as the creator, but rather the, you know, receptacle, receptacle, the receiver, you know, you hear stories about songwriters and it's like, oh, they were in their car and then they were scrambling and they wrote the song on the back of a parking ticket. Because, or in the shower, you know, that Uh these are the places where when your brain is relaxed, that, that stuff happens. So great, great. And you said you would read a passage for us from one of your books. Sure. I was hoping you could do that now. Um, Let's see. Well, what book we, oh, from here. Oh, from the, oh, I know this book. It's called Polar Bear Morning. Well, (laughs) we hope that you know it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I do know it. Great. I do know it because of my wonderful collaboration with Lauren Thompson, who we wrote, um, we worked on, um, I know there's probably not time. There's a, she's actually, these books were sort of written with me in mind, which is a wonderful way to start your book career. Yeah. Um, Well, I mentioned that I was doing editorial work. I showed a picture of, this is actually a very funny story. We're talking about storytelling. I wanted to do picture books. I create this. Someone told me, okay, go see David Saylor, create a book proposal. Um, I did a book. This was my first book idea. I showed him um, and he showed Lauren my first book proposal. And it was called, you ready for this? Ghost Zoo. Wow, that's a winner. That's a good, <laughs> that's that's one that Barnes Noble is going to pick up. Um, ghost Zoo. And it was the story of a zoo where all the animals were ghosts because they, it was like an abandoned zoo that had wow. like crabgrass growing. And I, I really, you know, I'm, like 38 at the time. I don't have any kids. You know, I'm like, you know, this, you know, illustrator living in a one bedroom in Brooklyn. And I'm like, yeah, this is going to be a huge hit. This is what kids want. Um, And I remember there was a line that was something like, you know, and I wrote this rhyming text, which now, you know, rhyming text is, unless you're Dr. Seuss is a little bit tricky to get away with. I said something like, there's the elephant, uh, he's already fed, you know, something, something, don't worry, he's dead. You know, literally ended with the word dead and fed. That was the rhyme. And I thought, yeah, that's it. That's the the winning couplet right there. So anyway, there was a picture of one of these ghost animals and it was a white bear because ghosts are white and it was drifting out of its cage. And um, I showed it to them to, to both uh, David and Lauren Thompson and Lauren Thompson, who's the writer of these books was an editor at the time. Uh, at Scholastic. So, and she was doing books for Scholastic and other publishers. And she very diplomatically said to me, love the illustration, your illustration sample and not so crazy about the text or the idea. She said it much more diplomatically than that. And she said, we just need to find the right story for, for, for your illustration. So that white ghost bear became the inspiration. You know, a white bear looks like a polar bear. So she said, can you write a story about a polar bear? Because that would be nice. Polar bear, kids love polar bears. They don't like ghosts, but they love polar bears. So uh, so she, so I wrote her a story and uh, it was a little bit better than Ghost Sue, not a lot better. 
Um, and she said, no, not quite right. And then a couple months later, I got an email from her and she said, I have a story for you. Would you be willing to illustrate it? And it was the pretty much word for word, the, the story of uh, Polar Bear Night. That's great. Yeah. Great story. And so I, I've told this to students and they've said, um, wow, that's a pretty nice way. You know, your first book was sort of written yeah. for you. So um, Polar Bear Morning, which I'm, I haven't seen this in a while. It's pretty good. Looks, I mean, my <laughs> illustrations. <laughs> Not bad. That's why we invited you in. We think you're pretty good too. <laughs> um, so the trick was, was um, the bear has this magical journey at night and then, but then has another magical journey. Um, a magical journey into friendship, which, you know, at the time when I was working on the book, actually my daughter was doing the same thing that this little bear was doing, was trying to make friends. And for a parent, it's like, oh my God, I hope my little cub, you know, can find another cub to play with. Um, I love this. Um, well, I like the image and I like, I mean, good picture books have a nice little combo of, you know, words and picture work together. And there's a picture of it, this giant seagull. So you're up high in the air soaring with the seagull and you see the little tiny bear below. And the text, Lauren's text reads, again, the little bear hears the seagull's call. She sees them twirling together above the far drifts. The polar bear cub watches, wondering. She sets off across the snow and ice. Oh, I love this one. So um, she's met, the little cub has met her friend, and they're at the edge of this great sea. And there you see the seagull again. So this is sort of like the moment in the book where something big is going to happen. And you've got, you know, your, your, your climax of your story. And you've got all that. You've got the cubs and you've got the seagull who's been this kind of omniscient, you know, character that's been drifting around. And the text reads, the polar bear cubs pause at the ice's edge. For them, the waves toss and flash. The sea spray salts the air. So, you know, what is that, 20 words or something? And it just completely paints this perfect, you know, picture of, you know, adventure, adventure in the mind of a small kid. Um, and then, of course, all at once, the two little bears jump into the sea together. And, yeah, so it's a, it's a wonderful little story. <laughs> yeah. Great, great. Well, thank you so much, Stephen. Thank you. And I hope hey. you've inspired some budding illustrators oh, out there. I sure hope so. It was great yeah. talking to you. Thank yeah, you for having me. it was great talking me. with you too. Oh, good. I had fun. Right. And thank you for listening and sharing in our mission at Scholastic. We believe that the right book in a child's hands can open a world possible. Special thanks to producer Megan K. Safer, sound mixer and editor Daniel Jordan, and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberle.